Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Jay Klaus. The backstory here, it was a previous guest, Chris Hutchins, who said that Jay had given him some of the best yet contrarian advice on memberships. That was naturally enough of a hook for us. When we look around the landscape, we think there is an obvious opportunity that everyone sees once you build an audience. Can you create a community around that audience? Many try it. Few do it very well. Jay's business, Creator Science, not only sets out to help come up with these ideas for memberships, but generally to help creators earn a living. He's offering his wisdom through a podcast, through a newsletter, through YouTube, and through his own community that he runs. I think this is the most interesting portion of this episode is how Jay thinks outside the box on this ideas. He runs counter to how many people think about communities and network effects. And it's actually about the scarcity and creating a closer-knit community, a more hands-on community. A lot of interesting stuff and interesting ideas to seed your mind with on this one. Please enjoy this conversation with Jay Klaus. All right, Jay, I am pumped to have you on here. You came in as a recommendation from Chris Hutchins, a guest that we love and a business mind. And it was very easy for me to understand why he would have recommended you. I think going through your content, seeing your background, seeing the way you approached being a full-time creator aligned a lot with the way that Chris thinks about things, which is a very business-first perspective and really being logical about the choices you're making. So we're going to jump around, but I want to start with community because I think this is where you have some of the most fascinating insights. And one of the things that I noticed in your background going back in time was you were planning startup events back in 2012. So it's been over a decade of bringing this community together. Were you always a social chair of some sort? Was that in your DNA from day one? <laughs> no, I don't think so at all. In college, as a freshman, I was in a dorm, an honors dorm, and shared a common wall with a couple of kids who had started businesses in high school. Entrepreneurship generally had no part of my life up until college. And to meet two guys who were making their own path, making money on their own, it just blew my brain wide open. And over a period of a couple of months, they introduced me to the entrepreneurship organization at Ohio State University, which is where I went to college. It's called the Business Builders Club. They recommend I go and pitch an app idea I have because this is the time when everyone had ideas for apps. And that got me involved in the club. It continued to get me on the path to entrepreneurship. And over the next couple of years, I got more involved with that club. And that got me introduced to Startup Weekend, which at the time was a nonprofit organization before it was owned by Techstars and 
I got into the organizing of that event locally here in Columbus. So it snowballed. And when you are someone who is a connector of people and you're building community, if you're good at it and you enjoy it, it's intoxicating in a way. The people that you get to meet, the connections that you get to make, the value that you get to provide to people in a way that seems very elegant and low effort if you get the wheels turning. So it just became a pretty big part of my life and continued to this day. It's amazing how path dependent our careers and lives are, depending on who you meet or who you work for, makes a huge difference downstream years and years later. Matt mentioned your events back in 2012. You now have a digital community. Are the rules the same between communities that get together in person and communities that get together online? I think they should be. I actually think some of my success as an online community builder comes from the fact that I often think about my experience offline and try to emulate, well, what worked offline that allows this online experience to stand out amongst a sea of sameness and generally pretty bad online experiences. One story I like to tell is if you have ever gone to a local meetup in your hometown, a lot of us probably have, there's probably some sort of commute involved, whether you walked or drove or took a subway or something probably going to take five to 15 minutes to get to wherever that meeting is. If you're showing up alone, you are probably a little nervous walking into the building. You get to the floor, you open the doors, you look around and you're looking for somebody that you know. You want to feel comfortable in that space. You don't want to be alone any longer and you don't want to be anxious or nervous anymore. And usually when you open the doors at that meetup, some other people probably glance in your direction, see that you're there. At this moment of peak discomfort, you're probably not going to turn around and leave because there is an investment of time. People have seen you online, though. We often dump people into these community spaces. They open the metaphorical door. They're at peak discomfort, and it's so easy to click a red X and never come back. So I think a lot about how do we get people from that moment to feeling comfortable, excited, connected to the space. And a lot of that goes into onboarding into the space. A lot of it goes into the expectations that you set, how you welcome people into the space. I really tie everything I do online back to how does this work offline and what can I do to make that experience similar? I love that example. I was wondering how in the world that was going to apply to a digital experience. <laughs> and the fact that that's exactly what you have to think about is really interesting. If you were to just sketch out the key ingredients for a good online community, what do you think those are? I have a few things. I can list them off and I'll also explain a story here. I think ultimately a sticky online community comes from closeness to that space and the people within it. Let's take another example of a community that does well offline. Let's go with CrossFit. So when you join a CrossFit gym or a gym generally, you show up, you might be with someone who's already introduced you to this space because they're going there and they're saying, this is awesome. Let me bring you with me. Or maybe you show up on your own, but either way, you enter the gym, there's probably going to be someone there to greet you, make you feel welcome immediately. They're probably going to then explain to you some of the norms and how to use the space well. They'll probably give you a walking tour so you get comfortable with the physical space, even the tools within the space, so you feel safe that you won't hurt yourself. You might even get introduced to other people along the way. And they say, this is Diane. She's been coming here for five years. So suddenly you feel welcome, you feel comfortable, you feel like you have friends there. And after a short period of time, if you go to the gym, you're going to see literal physical transformation. Online is very similar. You want to go into a space, 
You want to feel welcome there. You want to feel comfortable there. You want to feel like you know how to use the tools that are within that space. You want to get connected to other people within that space. So you have relationships there. And after a short period of time, you want to see or feel noticeable change in yourself from having been there. And that tells you that, okay, this is working and this is a good investment of my time. And then can you draw the parallel between that stuff and how you run your community and how you've incorporated those principles into what you do? So my community is called The Lab. It's a membership community. And the first thing that people see once they join The Lab is a embedded calendar to book 30 minutes with me. So I'm essentially the greeter at the door saying, hey, welcome. We'd love to invite you into this space. Once they schedule that call, which doesn't happen in real time, it's not as if I'm sitting on Zoom waiting for them to join, but at least they know that, hey, I have this greeting. Once they get in, I'm basically trying to answer the question of now what that's on their mind over and over and over again until they have a feeling of this is exactly what I was looking for. Wow, this is different. I'm excited about this. So once they schedule with me, they get into the community. It prompts them on how to take the next steps. And that is done in video from me. So they fill out their profile. They make an introductory post. Then they're given a video tour of the space. So literally showing them around, telling them what to do. It recommends that they then go through what I call a member guide, which is actually a course, a short course that's video by video that's titled with, here's how to get the most out of your membership. During this time, they'll have gotten a direct message from me saying, hey, welcome to the space. This message was automated, but I wanted to be timely and let you know how to get the most out of this. And by the way, this is my profile. So respond to this and I'm happy to give you any help that you want. Once they make an introduction, which I don't have the exact percentage, but I would say more than 90% of introductions that happen in the lab are done in video. They will get a video response back from me. That's personal. That's direct to what they said. They'll often get responses from maybe 10 or more other members very quickly. So all these things are happening. They're feeling welcomed in the space. They're being shown around the space digitally. They're getting a greeting experience. They're getting personalized welcomes to them. And often what I like to do in my response to their introductory posts is also tag another member to try to create a connection between them and somebody else. So that's the short version of it. But onboarding happens within the app. It also happens through email. All these things that are happening, if they were to get distracted or close the window, they're also going to get some prompts over the next several days in email with the same things. A lot of people optimize for everything up to the transaction, the sale, and then basically say, okay, sink or swim, it's on you. And I really try to, in all of my products and experiences, have an outstanding, remarkable post-transaction experience. It's interesting that you incorporate so much video I think some of the earlier introduction-oriented things make a lot of sense. But even with the responses, what drove that choice? It goes deeper than that. When you subscribe to my email list at creatorscience.com, you will be greeted with a video. And it's because I think about relationships and trust and how you form relationships quickly. And I think that you can stack rank the medium of communication to how quickly you form a connection with somebody fastest thing would be if you and I were sitting together in person behind that I think is video. So I can't be in person with everybody, but video is very scalable. And the nice thing about very quickly greeting people in video, your energy comes across. So if they're feeling nervous, I can be calm. I can be excited. They're going to mirror that excitement. 
It also has the benefit of when they hear my voice and know what my voice sounds like, I'm thinking about email subscribers, they can literally read my emails in my voice. That's something that I really value as a cross-platform strategy. I want you to watch the YouTube channel. I want you to listen to the podcast that when you read my emails, you actually read them in my voice and I'm writing in my voice. I think that builds trust in relationships faster. I think about this a lot just as creators generally, but specifically as it relates to your membership and what you just described. How do you extract yourself? Everything at the beginning is you-centric around the community. And obviously, that's why people are joining the community. But at some point, you want to pass them off and make sure that they can meet other people and that actually the community can survive without you in it. And so how do you think about that transition of almost holding people's hands into the room and then saying, hey, meet this person, meet this person, and now I can step away? It depends on the experience that you're building. So for the lab, the premise of that product and experience is actually a lot of continued access and support from me. And that's why we actually put a cap on it. I have a 200 member cap. We're at the cap. We've been at the cap for three or four months. And I put that cap in place because the amount of time and attention I am putting in there on an ongoing basis and want to continue putting in there is not sustainable beyond 200, maybe 300 members, but I kept it at 200. Other communities, if you do want to remove yourself more and be less involved, it's really about expectation setting up front, I think and painting the premise and the value and the experience to be independent from you. So that the reason that I joined, the reason that I transact in the first place is not because I expect something from Jay. It's I expect the delivery of this value or this transformation that you painted for me and the means of how don't really matter as long as you deliver on it. So what you don't want to do is make it seem like, hey, I'm going to be super active, super accessible, super supportive, and then not. It's better to have a very specific premise for the product or experience and then be a little more vague on how you deliver it, but very rigorous on how you ensure that people go through the right series of steps to get it. The internet really introduced a lot of larger communities. I think of like the early days, I often talk about being somebody on message boards and different forums, and then eventually that led into Facebook, Twitter these mass market platforms. I think you've definitely seen the public conscious shift away from that. And the most common thing is the group chat. There's certain things you say on social media. There's certain things you say in the group chat. What you have is interesting, a capped community where you are literally limiting the amount of people that can be involved. Do you think this is something that has mass market appeal, but could be done many times over by other creators in their niches? Do you think this is something that can be mirrored or matched? Because it seems to me like it's not something that I see exist in many other places. You mean my membership model generally? Yes. Oh, yeah. 100%. I think we'll see a lot of it. There's a couple of lenses to look at this. I think the broader internet community space, I think of in concentric circles. So where you might have the subreddit as the largest outside circle with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of members around a certain interest, you'll get smaller and smaller circles until you have maybe a one-on-one -on -one relationship or like a very small size relationship. And as a community scales, I think it's important to think about how do we facilitate smaller group discussions within the community to allow people who have this large interest, which we might have a large community based around, but they want to have more small, intimate relationships and conversations. How do we support that? No matter what circle you land on, I do think that we'll see a lot of people who play 
the role of smaller, intimate community for people who specifically want this or people specifically like this because it's a different experience. It's a lot more personal. There's far less talking at each other and far more talking to each other when you know most or all of the people in a space, you almost feel like an obligation to help them succeed. Everything feels a little bit more personal and collaborative. And I think that makes for a differentiated, sticky community experience. We are going through an expansion in the number of communities that exist out there because the tooling has become easier. There are more creators with an audience than ever before. And a lot of creators will say, I have an audience, the tooling exists. Let me throw the two together. Now I have MRR or ARR like a SaaS company. And people will do that because they have affinity for the creator. But without intention, those communities will fall apart. And so right now we're in this phase of expansion. I think we will see in the coming years a return to the mean where people decide basically there's going to be one, maybe two communities that I dedicate time to that are my favorite. And I think you as the community builder, your goal should be right now, how do I become one of the one or two favorite communities in my people's lives for that inevitable future? You've mentioned sticky community a number of times already. What does sticky mean to you? What are you measuring in terms of success with the people sticking around in the community? Do you have realistic ambitions for it? I want this to be a lifelong thing for people. So how do I make sure that they get value over multiple years and decades? I maximize for retention in the community because that I think is the purest metric of how are things going here? <laughs> do people like this? If they renew, then that means that they like it or it's continued to be a good fit or both. If they don't renew, there are reasons not to renew that are not your community sucks and I hate this. Sometimes life circumstances change, priorities change, and that's okay. But for people who are continuing down this path, I hope they stick around. And retention is great because you don't have to not only find and market to new members, but you don't have to onboard that new members. You don't have to do a lot of the things that I do to make the initial experience amazing. I invest a lot upfront in the experience with members so that they feel connected to the community. They understand the cultural fabric. They get closer to other people and that those relationships can really bloom over a long period of time. The lab is also an annual only membership. I don't even have a monthly or lesser option. So I'm really optimizing for low churn, low velocity of change generally and relationships and closeness within it. A lot of people look at engagement metrics and I think engagement metrics can be misleading and also even dangerous, but retention, that is a very pure metric in my opinion. From a business lens, the scaling limitations that you put on yourself change the dynamics of the business in terms of how big it can potentially get. Do you think of that as an issue at all? Is that something that you've just become completely comfortable with? Is there some other way that you're thinking about monetization outside of purely the lab? I think it would be an issue if I looked at Creator Science as a membership company. If the lab was the only driver of revenue and what I wanted to be the biggest growing driver of revenue, then yeah, that would be a problem. But I never really wanted this experience to be the business. I wanted this to be one product, one experience, one revenue stream within the media company that I'm building. And frankly, I would not be able to build a media company if I tried to scale a membership because there would not be time. I don't have 
great boundaries as someone who runs a community. And so I would not have the time and space to be doing YouTube, to do the podcast, to be writing the newsletter twice per week. I would lose something on the content side to do this. So I looked at the membership as this is an outlet that can become a good financial engine. I did a lot of spreadsheeting and math to say, if I put these limits in place, is this going to do for me what I need it to do to justify the time that I know I'm going to have to put into it? And what else does that open up? And so my goal is to actually drive more revenue in the business from digital products. And this is providing the financial cover to do that development of those assets. Now, when we hit our cap, I did introduce a lower tier of membership that is uncapped, that does not have forum access. It has access to all the educational materials that I've created and continue to make over time. So it is technically uncapped on what it can earn. It's just not the full community experience within that membership. Did you question that as you built the membership, you very kindly and openly share what you earn from the media business you're building and the membership portion of it dwarfs a lot of the other revenue lines that you have. And you're doing a ton of different things from the podcast to YouTube to online courses, like you were saying. Have you questioned whether you should turn the business into a membership platform and scale it that way? I think very long term. And I don't think that's the business that I would want to run long term. I think there's a world where I have a scaled membership community that isn't capped and the experience is different. The experience is not predicated on my support, access to me, things like that. If I were to try to make that the lab, I would have to fundamentally change the promises I make, the reason that people bought in. So I would introduce a lot of churn and chaos in doing that. And I'm not interested in doing that. I love the community that we've built and the members of the lab are much further on the customer journey towards being a professional creator than the majority of my audience. So it's much more likely that I would create a second membership community with a different experience at a different price point that can grow larger and not change the lab at all. So I think there are a lot of possible models. My goal as a business owner is to decouple my time from my revenue entirely in a membership model. You can't totally do that. I would rather use the membership model as this interstitial phase, which will probably be several years, many years, to transform the business into something that is much more digitally product and maybe sponsorship oriented. Before we transition to more creator stuff, just one question on the renewal phase. You said there's only an annual option here, and you talked about how much effort you put into onboarding people. I have to think there's some thoughts here where the renewal phase is not a cheap product. It's not crazy expensive. But what do you do around the point at which people are faced with this bill again at the end of the year when they might have other things in their life that they're outlays of cash for? It's a really good call out. It's something that I should put more effort into, or at least could put more effort into than I'm currently doing. The idea initially, when somebody joins the community, they actually, in filling out their profile, tell me a lot of information about their business. Give me a current snapshot so I have context so I can support them. But the idea is that I could also expose that initial snapshot to members at the point of renewal and say, this is where you were a year ago. Check out where you are today. If you think the lab played a significant part in that growth, then I would consider sticking around. Candidly, I haven't done a whole lot around renewals for no other reason than capacity. <laughs> but so far, we've had more than 90% retention month over month. 
which is fantastic. First couple of months were 94 and 95%. So it's been great. Now, of course, the people who joined in the first months of the membership are probably my biggest supporters, people who are paying close attention, maybe even want access to me more than others. So retention month over month will probably dip a little bit as the year progresses. But I think having a captain membership helps retention as well, because if somebody left, it's difficult for them to get back in because we have two ish spots open per month right now. And those go first to members on the starter membership, which is the lowest tier of membership, then to the wait list. When I put those new spots up for sale to my email list, it hasn't lasted more than seven minutes. So it would be difficult to come back in and it would be at a higher cost basis than when they initially joined. So the cap has been good for retention as well. I had a feeling that was the answer when you said you haven't spent much time on it, that it hasn't been a problem. Hasn't been a problem. I love it. Transitioning into the creator side of things, I think a lot of the content you produce is studying creators, talking with those that work in or around creation. When you step back, what percentage of creators do you think actually treat their business like a true business? Depends on where they are in the customer journey. I look at the customer journey of being a professional creator in five stages. Let me start there. The first is consideration. Do I even want to do this? The second is finding fit. Do I know where my stuff fits in, what my premise is that should work? Third is finding traction. Not only do I know what my premise is, but people are starting to resonate with it. Fourth is going pro. And this is where people are really professionalizing and where I think they need to start looking at this like a business. And then the fifth is scaling. So if you're not yet in the going pro phase, phase four out of these five, most people aren't thinking of it like a business in my experience. There are a lot of people who are in the traction phase or entering the traction phase who have that temperament. But I think broadly, historically, most creators haven't really approached it this way. Now, I will say the ones that blow up really quickly, people like Cody Sanchez or Andrew Huberman, these people are, and it's not a coincidence that they have a faster trajectory and they're approaching it like a business. But a lot of creators got into the game because they like making stuff. We've had better creator tools than we've had in the past. And so it's easier to make stuff when you are obsessed with some art form and you are prolific in what you put out there and you make interesting, differentiated stuff. Chances are that you might attract an audience, but an audience does not create a business. An audience is a great asset in building a business, gives you a great starting point, but there are probably more creators with an audience than treat it like a business. It's interesting. You've worked across so many different mediums or you do work across so many different mediums with YouTube, the podcast, Twitter, newsletter. Have you thought about doubling down on one specific medium and letting the others go to the side? Podcasts, I think you've even mentioned, growing a podcast is incredibly difficult. There's not as many ways to hack into audience growth. So I'm just curious, what keeps you focused on something like that, growing the podcast, in addition to everything else you're doing? It's especially hard to allocate your assets when you're trying to go across platforms, as I am. Because it's not even just getting good at the game. You know, I can get good at the game of Twitter in terms of what kind of content, the formatting, how to engage with my followers. But there are games within the games, too. You realize all these platforms have different players who play the game, who open up new doors, new levels of the game. So as you extrapolate across multiple platforms and winning the game that is the platform and the game within the game that is the relationships on that platform, it becomes very difficult to manage multiple platforms. 
I foolishly have boxed myself into a corner where if I'm going to help all creators, I feel that I need to have a working knowledge of all of these platforms. And so that's very, very challenging for me. The better approach for a creator who is not a meta creator as I am is in fact to choose, I would say two platforms. One of them that I would describe as a discovery platform, something that has discoverability built in probably an algorithm because the platform wants attention on it and a relationship platform, which is email, podcasting, SMS, and a private community. So have one of both of those because your relationship platform is what de-risks you over the future. It's the long-term asset that you build, the distribution that you own. And the discovery platform is how you create that distribution. It's best to focus on one social media platform, in my opinion, as your discovery platform. And once you have a good asset there, you can leverage that to more quickly grow a second platform. Why do you think the common advice of being consistent is dangerous advice for creators? I think it's dangerous because of the way that it's heard. I think people who are just getting started, they hear be consistent and they think to the models of what consistency is in their life. They think to what do I see in my feed? I see Alex Hermosi, I see Gary Vee, I see Cody Sanchez. They think being consistent is being frequent. They think it's a volume game. They think I need to show up every day with a high quality video or even every week. Consistent means a lot of different things. Having a schedule is one thing. You can have a consistent schedule that's I publish once a month and you can do that and be consistent. So consistency is good advice when it's understood well, but a lot of people hear it and they think I need to be everywhere all the time and they burn out on it. Consistent is, can I keep the schedule that I promised to people? Can I show up with a level of quality that I'm proud of and gets stays as good or gets better every week? Can I be consistently the person people expect me to be? If you're over here talking about Web3 today and over here talking about AI tomorrow, you're being a little inconsistent. And I don't know why I would choose you as the person that I want my information from. So consistency is good advice if it is explained and understood accurately. What else fits into that category of advice that often gets misconstrued is well-meaning when jotted down on a piece of paper, but people tend to conflate it with other things. I think advice generally is that because advice presumes a lot of things when people share it. Advice is well-meaning, but a lot of times people are using post-rationalization. They have a survivorship bias. They are thinking about a time frame which is fundamentally changed. They're thinking about their path and sometimes just justifying the path that they have taken. So really, I think all advice should be taken with a big, big grain of salt. And the skill is hearing advice, sifting through it, figuring out what elements of this are applicable to me today based on my goals and what I knew this person's goals to be. I think much better than advice is flexible, resilient questions that help you arrive at your own conclusions based on current state, current context. You talked about really trying to optimize for certain things that you know can lead to audience growth. And I think that actually plays into this challenge that a lot of creators have where it feels like they want to be creative, but there's some homogenous form factor that's winning the game that you talked about. And in order to play the game, they give up some of their creativity. Where do you find the balance in that? Because I think it's something that I've certainly struggled with. And I think we all sometimes struggle with, oh, don't hate the player, hate the game. But this is the game. 
but I'm giving up my creativity. So where do you come around on all of that? There's a saying that's the young player knows the rules. The old player knows the rules so that he can break them. You have to learn the rules so you can understand what you can bend and what you can play with and what you can do a little bit differently. And that is the meta game because you will not win by being a derivative version of somebody else. I think about, let's take Twitter or LinkedIn, writing-based platforms. If people blocked out your photo, blocked out your name, your headline, and just saw the body of what you've written, is there any way that they would guess that that content came from you? I think the best creators, the answer is yes. They have a voice, they have a perspective, they have a style that was unique, has gained notoriety through them, and is then associated to them. And I think you have to develop that. And you can develop that pulling from things that you know work well. I know that things perform better when you start with a little bit of a hook, something that opens a loop, something that drives curiosity. But then the way you explore that and close that loop, I think should be unique to you. The topics that you explore should be unique to you. The premise of your business generally as a creator needs to be pretty unique. So there are formats that do well. It's undeniable that right now, as we're recording this at the end of June of 2023, the best format to post on LinkedIn is still the document upload, which you might think is a carousel, but it's actually a document upload. That is just the form factor that does the best on LinkedIn. Take that knowledge and do with it what you want. You might see that a lot of people are taking screenshots of their tweets with a black background, a white text, and you could do that and it will do what it does. It's not necessarily unique to you. It's derivative. It's a format that will get stale. So the question is, do you want to wait until that format gets stale, squeeze whatever juice you can, and then wait for someone else to discover the next format and then be derivative of that? Or do you want to try to get ahead of it and experiment right now, try to find unique format? Great example of this is Billy Oppenheimer. Billy is a research assistant for Ryan Holiday. And he was the first creator I was really seeing who was basically sharing long form horizontal clips on Twitter as his content strategy. And they crushed, did so well. And then over time, not only was he sharing those clips, but he expanded on the context he was sharing. He was really doing long tweets. I don't see a lot of people doing long tweets well. Long tweet with a horizontal video clip. And that is just crushing. If I saw somebody publish a horizontal clip that is historical in nature, but talking about the creative process with a long tweet, and you covered up their name and photo, I would think that's a Billy Oppenheimer tweet. Might not be. Might be someone that's being a derivative. But even if you do that and you do it well, I'm going to attribute that format to Billy in some ways. So I think the opportunity is in innovating within what you know might be working on those platforms to discover what is your unique flavor, your new, unique approach. And that's going to come with a lot of failure. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you try that you're excited about that doesn't do well. And you're going to think, why am I doing this? Why don't I just go back to the screenshot tweets that I was doing? And again, you could do that. You'll grow some form of audience, but you got to get really good then at building a unique relationship and trust with that audience as well, or you're very commoditized. That was the question I was going to ask. What would you say to the people listening who in reference to that example about Billy, say that's just survivorship bias. There are tons of people trying different stuff over a long period of time and none of it ever sticks. None of it ever gets hooked into the algorithm in the way that his stuff has done. What would you say in response to that to those people who are grinding but having very little success? My bet would be that Billy also failed for a while before doing that. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Someone was telling me this great statistic about the Beatles and how many songs they have and how many songs were hits. And it was a minority. One of the biggest bands of all time 
the minority of what they created was commercially successful. It's just going to happen. Just because you're failing right now doesn't mean that, okay, I can't succeed. It's, okay, I'm trying stuff. I'm getting more data about what's not working. Let's take that and apply it to something and try to find a new format that is working. Last week, I tried something on Twitter where I just published the thumbnail that we published on YouTube for one of our videos and said, hey, in case you missed it, I interviewed Justin Welsh and here are the four things we talked about. Thought it would absolutely bomb. Did not think it was going to be interesting. Did really well. Drove listeners to the podcast, viewers to YouTube. Interesting. Data. Data has been collected. I'll ride that train. I'll try it out some more. And if that stops working, then I'll try something else. But if you're not experimenting, you're not going to be rewarded with any type of first mover advantage. And a lot of this involves adapting. Do you think there's any strategy that's timeless? Something that will stick around, won't get phased out? Anything related to content that falls into that category? I think the timeless truth is that you need to be reader or viewer centric or customer centric, as Amazon would put it. The stuff that works the best is stuff that genuinely delivers value and results to the person on the other side. A lot of the stuff that I see do well on different platforms, this chest beating, look at this awesome thing that I did, because the initial signals you'll get is people will be happy for you. They'll express support. They will engage with the thing, but it's not really delivering value to that individual. So you get this almost false signal that if I post about my metrics, that's what people want. But, and I'm saying this from experience, over time, that's not actually that interesting because it's not helpful. People are self-interested. And after a while, your hollow chest beating makes people feel bad or it might become unrelatable. Ultimately, the thing that matters is, can I be helpful to the audience? Can I deliver results? Can I help them get the thing that they want? That is what's timeless about this, is that if you're going to build an audience, it's because you are creating something of value for them. It brings up an interesting point. And we actually think about this a lot with our show, where we are playing the role of the student and asking a lot of these questions. And you do the exact same thing. And I would say, based on you being on our show, we are deciding that you are more than qualified to be the expert or the teacher in a lot of these situations as well. And there's something to that perception, which you mentioned. Are you this person who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and an authority? Or are you willing to be vulnerable, admit that you don't know things? And I actually think I go back and forth on this sometimes, where when you ask so many of these questions and you come across as somebody who doesn't know these things, do you get this perception of being not all-knowing or less respect from the outside business world? Do you feel any of that? And especially in regards to your shows, where I see a lot of what you ask, and I can imagine that you could probably answer a lot of the questions that you're asking. Yeah, there is a little bit of a dance there. It's gotten to a point on the podcast where I'm realizing I should do more solo shows because that'll help balance. You do want to show evidence that you know what you're talking about. But ultimately, your expertise is perceived in the mind of the person consuming this. Me saying I'm an expert is not nearly as compelling as me telling you something that you did not know that you perceive to be knowledge I have gained that you do not have. So it's better to show expertise than tell it. And it is a balance if you are the host of a podcast and you're asking questions and I look at the transcripts, I speak 10 to 20% per episode and just about all of that 
content, it's questions. <laughs> and so strategically, now that I have built a bit of a following who do respect my perspective, I have changed the format of the show a little bit. It's still mostly an interview show, but the two things that I'm trying to do differently. One is it's less of a profile of the guest. It's less me just profiling the guests and their experience. It's more of me leading a specific discussion with an outcome that I want from that episode, because I actually want every episode of the podcast now to be an asset that is referable later. A good example is I just interviewed Patty Galloway. who's one of the most well-known YouTube consultants out there. Instead of me saying, let's tell the Patty Galloway story. I had him talk to me for 30 minutes about pre-production strategy. And that's a very specific, useful episode ongoing. The second thing that I'm trying to do with a strategy is solo episodes, as I shared. Today, I released a question and answer episode of the show where it's all questions that I fielded from Twitter, from LinkedIn, from the community, and I just spent an hour answering those questions. The third thing is I actually see a lot of power and momentum in having a co-hosted show. You guys have that. That's a benefit of what you guys have because there is already existing rapport between the two voices that you're hearing as a listener. And when you're listening to two people who seem like friends, you feel like a friend in the room. And while I don't anticipate taking on a full-time co-host to the show, it has got me thinking about return guests, almost repeating characters. I think Pat McAfee has been doing this for a long time really, really well on his YouTube channel. Because over time, those become episodes that people actively seek out, hit play, they want to listen to, they're more fun. And it's also easy for you as the host to do it because you can get on there and I won't say bullshit around, but sometimes you can. You don't have to script the thing out. Your natural rapport and curiosity will carry the episode and the energy of the show. So I do think it's a balance of if I am a student of this space, how do I continue to display my own earned insight and unique perspective within the confines of this format so that people do still perceive me as someone they can learn from? I am looking to get rid of my co-host. So if you're looking for one, then I'm I just getting seem <laughs> like friends, seem like friends. <laughs> As we just close out, I would love, and you've mentioned a number of them already. And the caveat to this question is you're not allowed to pick anyone that people will likely know well. Who do you suggest people study in the creator space or world? Leave it very open-ended in that context. But if we take away one or two names that we can go and just observe what they do, and then put a bit of what they do into our practice. There are a couple I've named that I will name again, just so people hear them, because they are genuinely some of my favorite examples. Andrew Huberman is one. Cody Sanchez is another. I'm also a big fan of Dan Runcy. He writes a blog called Trapital, which is at the intersection of business and hip hop. Tori Dunlap, her business is called Her First 100K. She is sitting at the corner of finance and feminism. I call these folks out because they have very unique premises where you hear them and it's interesting and it's differentiated right off the bat. And you say, oh, I want to learn a little bit more about that. A friend of mine, Jay Akunzo, talks a lot about, forget the name of the guy, the guy who does Hot Ones on YouTube. Super interesting premise. Celebrity interview, but unlike other celebrity interviews, only we have the celebrities eat hot wings that get progressively hotter over time. Matt's obsessed with that. I think that's the future. There's a million interview shows. You got to change the framing. Same names, different frames. I should also note that most of the folks that I've just called out and that I've talked about today fall on the side of the spectrum that I would call creator educator. They are more about information and knowledge transfer rather than pure entertainment. I think entertainment 
as part of the creator sphere gets the lion's share of attention when people talk about the creator economy. But I think it's actually the scarcer opportunity because I think there's really only a small number of celebrities, quote unquote, that the culture has time and space for. Whereas in the education space, you can really carve out a unique premise for a specific type of person who's trying to acquire a specific type of skill or insight. I think there's much more opportunity for people to enter the creator economy in that realm. Last question. When will you buy J.com? Not if, when. Here's the funny thing. So I have been looking at J.com for a long time. It was previously owned by, I think, a bus company called J or Travel J or something. And I think they probably still own it and they're trying to sell it and make a lot of money from it. It was listed at $1.5 million at one point. Then it got raised to $2 million. And it's listed, I think, on Dan.com. And that measures traffic and views. And at one point, I tweeted about it, which I think drove a lot of traffic to Dan.com, which they saw as, hey, there's increased interest in this domain. Let's raise the price. And so now it's $3.5 million to buy J.com. There was a Netflix show, I forget the name of it, but the series was about this guy who has a business buying and selling collectibles. And as I was looking at J.com being for sale for $3.5 million, I watched an episode where he buys a LeBron James triple logoman. It had pieces of three LeBron James championship jerseys in this card. He bought that card for $3.5 million. Do we really think J.com is worth the same amount as this incredibly rare LeBron James triple logoman card? I don't think so. This raises a fascinating question as to whose name has the most value. I'd love to know what Dom.com or Matt.com or any other names are valued at. I still love the idea that domains are real estate in the real world and that in 40 years from now, we're all going to say to ourselves, wow, that was such valuable real estate that only exists and you can't recreate it and all of that stuff. So I tell myself that all the time. And yeah, we love to pick up random domains. But yeah, if you're ever looking for a financing team, you just let us know and we'll put together a consortium and, <laughs> and make it happen and document the experience. Jay, honestly, this has been an awesome conversation. Learned a ton from you. I think you have a lot of fascinating things. And I'm just really excited to see not only what you do in the near term, but what you do longer term. Nice. Well, I'm a fan. I'll come back anytime. All right. I have some takeaways, but I want to hear yours first. I had spoken with Jay before and thought a lot of what he was doing was creative, different, thoughtful. But what's your media takeaway? I just want to know what Dom.com is selling for. And I want to know what Matt.com is selling for. And I really want my price to be higher than yours. Because I'm not going to buy mine. But I just want that validation that the Doms are worth more than the Matts out there in the world. Digital real estate matters. I think we will all become more appreciative of that over time. We were actually talking about this the other day because we're joincolossus.com. And if you haven't visited the site, please do joincolossus.com. But we were wondering at what price we would buy colossus.com. Yeah, it's a solar panel company that I get a lot of LinkedIn messages about. They think I'm um, selling solar panels, but when they go to the wayside, then we'll pick it up. I think we might have a few of their employees on our LinkedIn page as well. They're all part of the broader Colossus family. Exactly. But we're all one big Colossus. I derailed us before we began. Thoughts on the conversation? I really enjoyed it. I'll be honest, I was maybe skeptical going into the conversation. Jay, I'm sorry, but you exceeded all my expectations. What he's doing with his community is so interesting. 
because you see loads of communities out there and this feels very different to that his high touch thoughtfulness about it is really appealing to me and more broadly whenever we think about community because it's something that is a recurring theme that we think about and how we harness the community around our podcasts the natural question is we don't want to build another twitter or pick your other social media platform that generally people will discuss our stuff on and I think this is such a good example of why that wouldn't be building another whatever it is, because you're constraining it. The retention mechanism that's built into the business model, fascinating. You get to that point and, you know, he's charging $1,000 a year, if not a little bit more for some people to be in the 1500 1500 in the community. And so obviously for most people, that's a big outlay at certain one point in the year. But then when you think about, oh, well, I got a lot of value through the year. And if I don't sign up, then I can't get back in. That's brilliant. Yes. I think it's very interesting when you think about what technology is allowed for. And it's all of this mass market, mass population. You can connect with anyone, anywhere. And you had these huge platforms. And I think you're definitely seeing a shift back toward appreciation for more in-person events. And that's part COVID. But I also think it's because everything has just gotten so big that there's desire for something more intimate, something smaller. And in a conversation that I had with Adam Ryan, he talks about B2B media still being in early innings. So that niche media, while it seems like a popular concept to everybody in media, I think it's something like this, where it's even more curated, intentionally small communities. It's probably not even in the first inning. We're still in warmups. I also thought his point on surrounding yourself with the right people and just his experience in college, like I thought that was pretty telling. That, I think, is underrated by so many people. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's just happenstance, who you come across. There is something you can do about it. Well, there's nothing he could have done about it. He went to college and he happened to be in a dorm with these two people. Your first job, there isn't much you can do about it. Most people aren't intentional about their first job. They're just looking for a job. But your first manager is so influential for the rest of your career. I don't care, even 20 years down the road, they will have shaped your life by at least a few percent. And that's way more than you would want to put down to just the chance encounter you have with some maybe douchebag. Speaking from personal experience. No, I think the experience that he had, yes, you could not go out and create that necessarily, but you could put yourself in situations to be surrounded by the right people. You can increase your surface area of luck. So surround yourself with some of the right people in your friend group that might create the right professional environment. You need to take some control over this and some ownership over this idea. You can't just assume that it's all luck based on where you end up. Yeah, I'm not saying that. There is nuance to this discussion. Of course, you can cultivate you're the average of your five friends. You're the average of the five podcasts you listen to. In David Senra's case, you're the average of the five founders who are dead that you most enjoy. You know, there are ways to get this better. But I think most people early in their career, when it matters a lot, just drift into positions that they have no intentionality going into it. And there's nothing really they can do about it. Some get lucky, some don't. And ultimately, that shapes a big, big piece of their life. Just a thought. Are you part of any communities that you really enjoy? No. I am notoriously a bad... We've talked about this. I am, I think, the world's worst networker. When he was describing getting to the networking event or whatever event it might be after a 10, 15 minute commute and just standing around looking for someone to hold your hand and be like, it's going to be okay. That is me. Although I don't want to hold anyone's hand. I do want a friend that I can talk to and ideally then go to the nearest coffee shop and just have a conversation with. I'm just bad at meeting people. I like to think when I start talking to people that I can hold my own, but 
the act of going to those things, even digitally, honestly, it, it makes me nervous. Hence why my Twitter content is fairly haphazard and wasteful. I didn't expect the debrief to be more of a psychology session than anything else. I think the way he's designed it is very intentional to bring in anti-networkers in. So I think there's something to that. I think that's why it appeals to me so much as well. I can feel like this could be a safe space for me where I'm with people that are aligned in why I'm in this community and he would help me get into the community and meet other people. Are you part of any communities that you would hold up? Formal, tough to say. I enjoy Liberty, RPF, great Substack, has a nice Discord that he mostly is the one facilitating most of the discussion, but he's always writing interesting things. I historically was involved with many basketball message boards, great communities like that. So tough to say, there's not one defined one that I would consider myself a huge participant in. Actually, that reminds me, I am part of the No Laying Up message board. I guess that's a community, but I'm not an active member. I'm what people would term as a lurker. Maybe that describes me more generally, but particularly on that message board. Fair enough. Any lasting takeaways or things that you think we can apply? You said before we had this conversation, let's structure this and all future podcasts in a way that what would we want to re-listen to in a year's time as our business has matured and evolved in various ways that we can't even predict. And I think that first half on the community is the bit that I will draw on. And I think I will go back to it and listen to it a number of times because and I'm sure at some point we will implement something along the community lines. And I think that would be the first place I go to because there are just interesting ideas. And then going to see what he's done with it, I think, is also interesting. When we didn't really talk about it with him because we've talked about it elsewhere, they're, they're harder than it looks, I would say, communities. We have had a for foray into this. And people just assume that if you have people that like a certain thing, they'll get on well together and the community will just thrive on its own. It doesn't happen. So it's much harder than he makes it sound, but I definitely think he has a playbook that I would enjoy revisiting. I didn't think he made it sound very easy. I think he made it sound pretty hard, in fairness to him. But I would agree with you. If there's one thing that stands out as something that I thought that I would be good at, that I've completely changed my mind on, or I just don't have a strong opinion on, it's community. I've learned more about what doesn't work than with any other topic or any other specific part of business over the past couple of years. And that's been pretty interesting to me. So I would definitely agree with you there. And then the other point about his community is obviously doing really well financially for the business and his point of long term, that's not why I see my business as. And a big piece of that is because I don't want this to define me because it's not what I get tons of joy out of on a daily basis. I'm not saying that he doesn't get joy out of it. That's not the thing that he wants to be doing for the rest of his life. And it's always refreshing. I think back to Ben Thompson talked about this with Stratechery. His whole website and service newsletter podcast is centered around analyzing tech businesses. And it's all very objective, analytical stuff. And then when he talks about his own business, there are just areas where he's like, I just don't want to do that. I know that potentially that would generate more dollars or it would be beneficial for the long-term success of my business, but I don't want to do it. And I think that's really interesting because ultimately we are just human and we need to do things that we can do for a very long time. That's the key to all of this. Otherwise you get unwound in the short term. So that for me is also something that I'll think back to. How about yourself? I agree. I just walked away thinking like, I'm excited to see where Jay is in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I think we so often focus on people that have these huge audiences now and are at a very different stage in their journey. Take a Tim Ferriss. It makes sense to study Tim and to take a lot away from Tim. 
But why not study somebody who could be the next him and try to identify these people and catch them earlier on? Because what they say in those conversations is going to be a lot more valuable. I think they're going to be just as valuable as what they might say in 10 years. So yeah, there's something about Jay that stands out in the way that he takes his business so seriously in a similar way that Chris Hutchins does. And I think it's unique within the creator sphere. And I think some creators would honestly probably not find it as they don't like the idea of it being a business. They like to purely focus on the creative side of things. But I think that's ultimately what you need in something like this type of ecosystem is people on both sides of that. Yeah, well, presumably in five years time, he'll be on J.com. And maybe we can title this the next Tim Ferriss. I want that to happen. I believe that's going to happen. If I had to make a bet, I would bet a substantial amount of money that that will happen. What do you think the right price is that he should buy it for? Well, I bet $6 million that it will happen. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll find out. What do I think the price is? I have no idea. That was an unfair question. No. Anyway, thank you for introducing Jay into my life and getting him on the podcast. Enjoyed it a lot. I hope other people did too. Amen. And we will see you next week. If you have ideas to make these conversations more valuable in one year, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever that might be, fire them away. We like to think about these things as stuff that can be evergreen. We hope that it accomplishes that to some extent, but you let us know. We appreciate the feedback.